Hey guys, we produce this podcast for no other reason than to have a positive impact on the lives of you guys, the listeners, by sharing the stories and lessons of some incredible business owners. If you'd like to support our show, please head to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, rate us five stars and leave a review. Your review would be greatly appreciated and keeps us going. And now back to the show. Hello, legends. Today, I catch up with Cub member Nolan Keenan, the CEO of Avaline Property. Avaline is a property development firm that specializes in developments in coastal towns within three hours of Sydney. Nolan and I discuss the secret to making your business scalable, how to reduce stress by focusing on what's important, and overcoming fear to start your first business. Nolan is an incredible guy. You'll enjoy this show. Thank you. So usually I like we finish a podcast episode with a favorite quote or something, but I just loved yours so much. And it's actually a common one. Like everyone knows it, but it's just such an important one, which is that whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Mm. What 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 made that your favorite quote? What was the lesson you learned when, you know, when that sometimes your favorite quotes you're like it's something you've just realized you're like, mm. oh wow, that's important. Mm. Well, interestingly, this sort of grew over time, really. The the enormity of the quote grew over time, I should say, because uh, I read How to Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, and obviously Henry Ford plays quite a big part in that when he wrote the book. And, um, and you know, it's just one of those sort of quotes that for me has gathered more, more weight over time, you know, and I think that's just through experience, you know. You, and it's really, I think the large part of it is around belief because, you know, I follow Premier League football, for example, Man United fan, you know, don't, don't hold that against me, anyone out there who's not. But, uh, but you know, it's it's about belief. And, and, and you hear premiership managers, for example, talking in sport and anyone talking in sport about they went out and they won because they believed, right? And I heard that quote the other day with Man United when they beat Aston Villa. And for me, it's about that. It's about when you're in business, you have to believe you can do something. You have to be, you have to wake up in the morning and go, I can do this. And you started your business at um, the young age of 50. Mm. And was that, do, do you believe it's because you, you hadn't yet had that belief before that point? Is that, what, is that why it's such a, I guess, an impactful quote for you? Or, or, combination. Or? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a combination. It's a combination of um, probably some fear of not necessarily failure, but just there's a lot to manage, you know, and, and also then you've got a bit of golden handcuffs on the other side, right? Which is, you know, you're comfortable, right? Nice job, nice pay, yeah. environment. Yeah, yeah, totally, right? And so you're kind of between a rock and a hard place in some respects, but, but I think that's when the motivation kicks in. That's when the desire and the passion and the, do I want to spend the rest of my life working in a company where I'm not necessarily 100% satisfied or even 50% satisfied? Or do I want to go and give it a punt? And see what happens. And yeah. what was the catalyst for that? So you were at uh, Salesforce, I understand, for mm. uh, in leadership roles for for many, many years, mm. over seven years. I think I read just before, just just a little under seven years. Yeah. yeah. And and so I, Salesforce, I mean, the big tech companies are notoriously the best, some of the best companies to work for, mm. or, or they say. Mm. Um. So you really did have a good situation. Mm. What was it that finally? What was it? Was that quote broke the hair on the camel's back or whatever it was? Straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. Um, Look, I think it's one of those situations where you you 
you're, you're always in an, in American companies, particularly, is a very fast pace of uh, growth, or they expect you to grow and they expect you to expand and so on and so forth. So you're constantly thinking about the next role and being encouraged to as well, um, whether that's a sideways move or an upwards move or you know whatever it looks like. So for me, it was kind of getting to that point where it was either an upwards move or it was an outwards move. And I just decided that the outwards move held more merit, even though that I had to take a massive hit financially. But there it is, you know. And it, was it worth it? hundred percent. Yeah. thousand percent. <laughs> I always think that's important for people to hear because it is that scary, whether you're doing it when you're at the start of, start of your career or later on. But whether if you have a family and you've got kids and a husband or a wife and kids, and you have to make the decision then, it's it's going to be tremendously scary mm. regardless. But mm. I always love it when people say, no, it's definitely worth it. Because <laughs> I feel like that's important. It is. With the um, the book you mentioned, Think and, Think and Grow Rich, I mean, one of the kind of greats in, in terms of uh, self-belief and, and kind of manifestation. But one thing that I loved about that book, or the one thing that I really took from that book actually, was very much the the, the importance of writing down goals. Mm. And to this day, since reading that book, to this day, I write down my goals every single week. I write them every year for the, for the, for the year, but every single week I write my goals for the week and I even group them into what day I'm going to do them. And so, so I know every week this is going to be what gets done. But a hack that I've recently um, found, which, um, I guess hack for the listeners, but but I'd be curious on your thoughts on it too, is I used to just write my goals for the week. Mm. I've now, the past two weeks, I've only done this, started last week, was I rewrite every week my goals for the year. Mm. And then under them I put, okay, these are the things I'm doing this week, so these are my weekly goals that are going to contribute to that, to, to those yearly goals. And I've been, it's actually been making me happier. Mm. Like, and I got that from that book. It didn't say exactly do that, but I, you know, I've evolved it over time. Yeah. And I feel happier uh, over the past week um, um, it, when, when I'm doing my goals, because I'm also really associating my weekly goals with my annual goals. And it's helping me focus on things that I really should be doing as mm. opposed to oh, this meeting, this meeting, and randomly talking to this person for no particular reason. You know, it's really like, okay, what are the things that are contributing to those four things? Mm. And it is, I reckon it hasn't changed my life yet because I just started a week ago, but I really think it's going to. Yeah. I big hopes. I love that. Uh, it's something which I think that connectedness of, you know, your longer-term goals and your medium and short-term goals, I don't think a lot of people do that. I haven't come across many people who do that. I don't do that. Yeah. Well, I just started. Yeah. Not directly anyway. I Um, mean, I'll think about them and maybe I'll look at them, but I won't rewrite them every week. I think that's awesome. It is. And you know what else? You Sometimes your goals or targets slightly change because you've had a decision change or a strategic change or a financial situation change or whatever. And by rewriting your annual annual goal every year, Mm. it is staying fluid. Yeah. Like it is staying relevant. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just fantastic. And and so – you 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 decided to take the jump from um, um, from Salesforce mm. to become a developer, mm. a property developer, and your company focuses on. Um, actually, when did you move to Australia? Mm. Because did, did you start property development before moving or after? No, after. 
I moved to Australia in 2000, just before the Olympics. Then I had a stint back in the UK for two and a half years, a couple of years after being here. And then I came back in 2005, been back here ever since. And now you're a property developer. You've got a specialist in building um, smaller to medium-sized um, um, developments in coastal towns and regions mm. within three, kind of within three hours of Sydney. Yeah. Now, that's a very specific niche mm. in, in, in property development. And obviously having a niche in business is fantastic. How did you find that? Because fact, I think it found me. <laughs> I think it, uh, just because, look, I don't live on the coast, but, um, but I love the coast. And, and I think, you know, we're spoiled for choice in Australia. Now, the balance between finding good sites in places where um, the value will, you know, hold and go up um, and is not, that, you know, that's not sort of all up and down the coast. There's certain places where there's facilities and utilities and so on and so forth where you can actually have a development that stacks up and, and works. But, um, yeah, just I just love the idea of, you know, I think everybody wants to live near the coast. Um, and, well, not everybody necessarily, but lots well, of people do. I mean, they do. No one lives in the middle. No, yeah. no, exactly. No, I'm not going to be developing in the middle. Mm. No, not, well, never say never, but no plans to. Mm. So, but, but when you say it found you, mm. what do you mean by that? How well, did that happen? Well, I think just, just my sort of my love of the coastal life in Australia. I mean, I, I, even though I don't live next to the coast, I do love the, the, the coastal lifestyle. You know, I think that it's, it, it's a, such a, such a be- most beautiful beaches in the world, you know, and the oceans and, and everything. It's just stunning, right? So, you know, there's so many places that you can, you can build, you know, nice properties that um, where the prices aren't extortionate either. And there's a lifestyle, and and again, it's that it's that niche that separates you from. I mean, it's no, it's no secret that Sydney has a lot of developers. Yeah, you know, and and I know there's big, you know, big waves happening in the industry right now where the government and the commission are trying to clean it all up and mm. make it a lot harder for people to build and develop, or clean up the industry, whatever however you'd want to call it. Mm. But um, having you know, moving out of Sydney, more so could be a huge advantage in the sense too because there's less competition uh, yep. looking there. And it's actually funny because if you think about it, as a foreigner, like someone that came from overseas, you're thinking, well, if you live in Australia, why would you not want to live mm. near the coast? So it kind of pushes you to think that. You know? Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. It's interesting. I mean, I have started looking closer in Sydney as well. I was actually looking at a site in Rose Bay this morning. But, you know, it's but there's still a lot of opportunity, I think, and there's still a lot of um, – uh, untapped um you know places that, that that we can that we can develop and and not overdevelop but just develop into really high quality properties and how did you jump from um salesforce and and, and that to property development mm. what was the property has always been my passion uh, you've probably heard people say that i've certainly heard lots of people i am passionate about property you know it's but i started my career in 1987 in real estate in the uk Right. So I was an agent for the best part of six years. Um, I got fired because I was a bit of a mousy little kid at the time. And I decided that, okay, what am I going to do now? Technology was just emerging at the time. This was 1993. So I went back to uni and I did a degree in systems analysis and graduated in 98 with an honors degree in systems analysis. And I got into tech. So my career changed completely. Um, and But I've never lost that 
that passion for property. I've had investment properties and my own properties and so on and so forth. My choice of career at school, which I never got to do, is to be an architect, right? So now I've sort of come back to what I love um, and I'm working with great architects um, and seeing things in a very different light now. Um, I probably wouldn't have been able to see necessarily as an architect. Um, I'm actually mentoring one guy who's an architect. Um, but it's but it's just, for me, Salesforce was a really great company to be in for the time I was there, but I did my first development before I left Salesforce up in Queensland. And then I sort of got the, the bug for it. Um, whole, uh, investing was too slow for me. It, it, it's just, I was looking at the, the spreadsheets and I was kind of like, okay, this one's, you know, and I was like, well, nothing's happened. So <laughs> it's just, it's not dynamic enough. And what, what are the things that these companies, these big American tech companies do well? Yeah. So working at, you know, working in a sales force, what are some of the things that they're doing really well? They obviously mm. know what they're doing. They're big companies that some of the biggest, the most successful in the world. So yeah. what are some key lessons from, from Salesforce? You know, part of my degree was studying um, organizational psychology. And back in the 1800s, they, you know, they got quite damn pat the mechanization of tasks, work tasks. And McDonald's took that and put it on steroids, right? So McDonaldization was another piece of that puzzle. And companies like Salesforce have basically taken that model um, and applied it to their own organization. So it's very, it's very, um, cookie cutter is probably the wrong way of putting operationally it. Operationally driven. Very, very operationally driven. Very, right? So it's like there's a playbook for everything, right? And you follow the playbook. And so that also didn't work very well for me because I don't want to follow someone else's playbook. I want to be the driver. I don't want to be the passenger. So that always kind of, I wasn't a very good employee, actually, when I look back at all. I can't imagine you would you be. Know, I wasn't. <laughs> I was just like, just <laughs> waiting to find a way out. But it was, um, but th that's that's really the essence of it. You yeah, know, the it, key lesson is yeah. have your systems and ops yeah. down pat because that's how they scale. That's yeah. how they can get anyone to do yeah. really any role. Yeah, totally, totally. And, and you know, I've been out of full-time. I've been, I've been in full-time development there for a year. Um, you know, up until that point, I was contracting and consulting after Salesforce, but, but I've, I'm still trying to find the right processes and procedures and systems and what have you that I, I'm almost there, but I want to get it right. I want to get it really right. I think it's the hardest thing to do. It is hard. It, it is because I think well, it's a funny thing. Op, opera, I think the two hardest things to do are operations and, and team to build the great team. But I actually think it's a funny, it's like what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Because, I mean, in my experience at Cub, you know, before we had a great, they, so we, we had shitty operations. We had no operations at the start. Yeah, and then we kind of had some operations, but pretty shitty operations. Then we started building a great, like who are all now our leadership team. But back then they were just kind of, okay, we've got a great team now. And then they built operations, they got great at specific roles and build operations around those roles. And then they were able to move up and new people kind of came in. So it's kind of like, do you get the great team first or mm. do you get the great operations first? Like mm. what comes first? But you do need both. You do need both. And uh, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a one or the other is first. I mean, obviously you need people as you scale. Um, but 
you know, you need some basis of, um, you know, system and process. You need, you need to have a way of doing things, right? It's, it's, you know, it's sort of James Clear atomic habits kind of thing, right? You need to have a, a way of doing things habitually. So it becomes more second nature and then you're not focusing on that. You're just focusing on what you need to focus on. Yes. It needs to be a system. Otherwise, you're just a bunch of people doing random things. Yeah, exactly. No one knows. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's funny. It's funny because like what we did well was we found great people. And like you're saying, we didn't have, like I said, we didn't have ops, but we gave them the space mm. to actually create the role. Mm and to create what it then became. And then because they created it, they created the ops and yeah. we then formalized it and you know, wrote it down and did all that. Yeah. But then we use the ops these great people made to to move forwards mm. with, to, to scale with. Mm. So sometimes, you know, you might think that, oh, I need to get great ops now. Mm. Sometimes it's about actually finding the great person mm. that's better at that role than you Yeah. that can create the system for it because I, I, I don't know how to host an event. <laughs> I've never hosted one in my life. Oh, sorry, hosted I can, but I can't organize an event. No, no. I've never organized one in my life, but I host eight a day. Mm, mm. You know, I didn't create that. Mm. Great people did. So it's that kind of a thing, team and operations. They're two hard things, but you need both. I think so. I think the other thing about getting the right people or great people is that um, there'll be more ownership if they've if they've sort of had a major part to play in the system. built it. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of like it's their baby, right? So... There's more, I think there's going to be much more, um, you know, adoption of that. They're going, to, they're going to be able to sell it to, you know, the next person uh, and the next team member and the next team member in a way that is, I live and breathe this, right? And so my life at Salesforce was, was talking to companies about this very topic and helping. I used to develop blueprints and implementation plans and, you know, all kinds of things, TCO models, RCO, ROI models, all sorts of things on the business side to work with the sales guys. And, you know, I used to say to companies, you know, this is a great strategy and they'd agree, but I'd say if you don't execute on it, it's it's worth nothing. The only point of having this strategy is to use it, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, spinning wheels that I've seen in organizations and even if they take part of it and implement part of it, then it's it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, better than nothing. Better than nothing. Yeah, but it's when you um, it's when you it's when I see companies. I've seen companies get analysis paralysis about this stuff, and um, and it just it's analysis paralysis. <laughs> I haven't heard that. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, I've even had the situation where. T like team members have complained that a new team member has it easier than they had. And I said, of course they've got it easier than you had. Like we're a better company. We have better operations. Like, and you know, your work helped us create that, you know, like because right. our first, for example, like events manager, mm. they were the events manager, the community manager, the relation manager, the receptionist, the, you know, and then the second one was all those things except minus the receptionist and the third one. Yeah, like exactly. Eventually they worked their way down to they're just one thing. Yeah. You know, and, <laughs> and all the ones that were prior to that, they're still in the company and they're, they're all in great roles now because, you know, I always think those people are the most battle tested. So yeah, they, yeah. they took on the most, so they always go up, but. But then they're always like, oh, they've got it so easy. Like we should make them do more. I'm like, relax, just let them do, 
let them do that one thing, but do it great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's really interesting. Yeah. I actually read this the other day. I read something about, you know, founders of organizations, startups and that sort of thing who, uh, I can't remember who it was now. I think it was, actually, I think it was a podcast with the founder of lastminute.com. Um, and it was basically saying that, you know, it's when, when you, when you might step down as a founder of a company and you hand over to maybe a CEO or whatever, who hasn't been part of that journey, it's a very different take that they have on everything because they just haven't been in the trenches. They haven't been doing all of those jobs, wearing all of those hats. You know, when you start a business, as I know well, wearing the hats um, is, you know, you're doing everything. I, I'm, I'm now thinking, okay, well, when I get to 10 projects, for example, I'm going to need some help. Where's that going to come from? What's it going to look like? I've already started looking at that in terms of which bits do I want to farm out, if you like, but still have strong visibility of, but not have to do them every day, right? Um, feasibilities is one thing, for example. They take time. It takes time to put a really good feasibility together. I spoke to a guy last week. That's all he does. I'm like, wow, I didn't even realize anyone existed who just did that. So <laughs> that's fantastic. So it's that sort of thing. But when you've been in all of those roles, I think you definitely have a much better appreciation of what the company is, what its DNA is, because you've given that, you've, you've contributed to that DNA. It's part of you. Yeah, I think you've learned what it actually takes to start a company. Mm. It takes a tremendous amount of energy. Massive. You know, a tremendous amount of energy. And, and that, like I know a lot of um, big corporate CEOs and when I speak to them, and they're great, they're smart people, they know what they're doing too. But when I speak with them and I speak to some of my other friends who are, I guess, more like me, um, like I almost sense like, oh, I'm the – I'm the dog in this room. Like, <laughs> like if we were in a if we were in a fight right now, I'm winning because I I, I I'm willing to do anything. You're not. You know, <laughs> you can feel that. I can sense it when I talk yeah. to them. I'm like, I I could turn something successful. When I say I, I'm saying people like yeah yeah. I don't mean me too, but <laughs> people people like yeah, don't the sell yourself short. Yeah. <laughs> the business people. Yeah yeah. The entrepreneurs, but mm. but you can definitely sense that they're the real. They're the real like animals in the room. You can feel it from them. And so, so. Well, you, so you went into business mm. and like we're saying, you'd put on all these hats. Mm. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of stress that is created by that because now you're worrying about so many different roles, not just one. Mm. How did you cope with that? Mm. It's challenging. It's challenging, especially when you've got three kids, you've got commitments, you've got a lot going on. It's hard. It's, you know, I mean, there's no simple answer to it. You just have to try and I suppose, you know, there's a little bit of subconscious effort here, but I suppose in some ways I've just sort of learned to focus on what's important more than focus on everything, right? Um, and I, I think, you know, there's personality types, right? So we've all got our own archetypes. We're, we're all a certain type of personality. You know, do we like to be in control? Do we like to, you know, hand things out? You know, whatever it might be. But for me... It was really about what, you know, what do I need to focus on to actually have a business in the first place and stop messing around with stuff that I isn't going to actually create a business, but it might be nice, you know. So ultimately it's that. And that's, I suppose, in a way that helps you manage the stress because you're not, you, you are wearing a hat, but you're only wearing 
a very small hat for only a small part of the time maybe, but your main hat or couple of hats are over here and those are the ones you need to be wearing more frequently. No, I completely agree. You know? it, it really is that that understanding of what are the things that I have to do because, mm. you know, you don't have to do everything. Like no. there, there's a lot of shit that cannot happen and yeah. can go wrong for a business, but that business still keeps going. That's like, right. It's not stopping. There are some key things, however, that mm. you need to make sure happen. Mm. And, you know, having even just having that check, like, oh, done, like mm. I did the most important, you know, that is, that is um, relieving of stress. Mm. Yeah. I, had a, I had a chat with one of our leadership um, team uh, not too long ago and they were saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm across everything my whole team's doing and uh, it's, it's, it, it, I'm stressed. It's mm. making me stressed because I'm, I'm across everything. Mm. So, fuck, of course you're stressed. You're looking at like six people's problems. Mm. Mm. You should be focusing on your problems, on the things that are the most important. And, and that's a prime example of, mm. of how as, as leaders we, we need to focus on the most important thing. And what about with the ch- wearing of multiple hats? Mm. What were some of the key lessons you've learned in how to be – everything as a, as a business owner. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's some things that you know you're better at than others and you just sort of learn that over time. Um, and I think, um, and I think as you grow your business as well, you realize when certain things happen, um, that either excite you or might deplete you a bit, you know, what are the things, if you can sort of focus on, oh, those are the things that actually excite me. It's kind of like, how can I, leverage those when I'm not feeling so great? How can I feel, how can I, you know, reinvigorate that feeling, if you like, um, without having been in that situation or being in that situation? So it's kind of like, it's just a juggle. It's just a, just one big bloody juggle, right? It's like, um, you know, you're building the plane while it's taking off, you know, that's not easy. And uh, great way to put it. Yeah. I used to say this when I used to run, you know, big projects and programs in corporates, you know, it's like we're building the plane while it's taking off, you know, because everybody would be like, oh, yeah, but don't we need that in place? And we're like, yeah, probably at some point. Yeah. But but you know what? Just get the wings on and we'll worry about the rest <laughs> yeah, after. Just, just wings, <laughs> and, wings engine. and engine. Get it in the air. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's got no seats. Doesn't matter. Windows. Doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> Brakes. Doesn't matter. Yeah, we're not planning on stopping anytime <laughs> no, soon. That's right. that's right. Just get this thing in the air. But, yeah. It's hard. It's a juggle. And yeah. tell me about the property, the construction space. So, mm. actually, constru- property and construction is is like the third or fourth biggest sector in Cup. Mm. And um, and I've also got a lot of family and friends in in property and construction. Mm. And I know that you guys have been getting hammered for a long time. I think you had the big rains one. Mm. You had those those rains where all those construction stopped for ages. Mm. You, you had supply chain issues. You had c- construct the cost. Uh, uh, cost of goods and construction cost issues. Mm. Now you've got regu- over-regulation issues mm. with the um, – what's that, What's it called, the um, the guy that's walking around? David. Yeah, but what's, the, what's the, his the department called? He's the New South Wales Building Commission. Building Commission. Thing, yeah. And now we have the yeah. commission, which, yeah. I mean, on one side it's good to clean up construction. You don't want these mm. bad buildings going up. But mm. the other side, I've never seen over-regulation be a good thing. Mm. So how – you know, what's your perspective of the construction industry right now? Look, after COVID, it started to stabilise, right? So it's definitely, you know, it's and and prices have started to stabilise much more than they were. Um, but then you look at the global stage and you look at, you know, what's happening in 
Gaza and Israel and, and you know, there's, there's shipping being impacted potentially. So then you've got another thing on the horizon possibly. It's which, not, which could impact. It could. It could impact. Um, it's not at the moment. But so resources and, and products through COVID were obviously all impacted and that's, that's definitely stabilizing now. Prices of construction will never go down. So it really created the new normal in terms of what you can build places for. And of course, what that meant was that where feasibilities might have been stacking up before COVID because the build prices were X, all of a sudden that wasn't working, right? Um, so, so that's one part of it. The other part of it is um, that the regulation has only really been applying to class two buildings so far, although class one and class one B. They're in are, the, they're in the, they're, they're coming. They're in the, they're in the firing line. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, but a lot of the issues that have been found are, um, you know, in, in buildings where, you know, there was a, a lot less regulation. Right. Um, so I don't, I don't think over-regulating it is the answer. I do agree with you that it needs to be cleaned up a bit. But, you know, there's also a lot of isolated problems as well that have had the spotlight shone on them. And, of course, you know, the press then blow it up and sell more papers, right? So, And I, I personally hate the concept of because there's one bad egg, mm. we've got to punish all the good ones. Mm. You know, so why don't you just remove the bad one? Exactly. Like it makes more sense and it's cheaper. <laughs> That's right. It would be. So, you know, it's interesting. We find ourselves at this kind of, um, you know, this point in time where, you know, the government are crying out for more housing because, you know, we've got a massive influx of people into the country. And yet, you know, it's a struggle to find sites that really do stack up and they're profitable because at the end of the day, we're not doing it just for the love of it, right? We're earning a living. And isn't it such a weird circumstance in that, well, the country needs more people because, I mean, business need to employ more people mm. and we just need more people. So they got to let more people in. They let more people in, it pushes the property prices up and they're already having issues with people being able to afford property prices. But at the same time, they're uh, over-regulating the construction industry, which already has its prices high because of COVID and all the supply issues. Now their prices have to go even higher because they have to follow every single, you know, cross every team, do mm. every dot just in case they get, mm. you know, randomly checked and, and screwed over. Mm. And so it's this weird cycle of like the property price is getting pushed and pushed up and up and up and there's kind of no way to stop it, mm. you know, unless maybe you took out capital gains tax. Mm. But then you potentially tank the entire economy because our economy is pretty much property, property mm. and mining. Well, you know? those <laughs> are the two. I mean, you know, property and, and the thing is property can't fail because it is such a big industry. It's like Trump going around America going, I can't fail because I'm too big. You know, it's the same thing with property here. You know, it's like it just cannot fail. So and they it, don't let it. Yeah, they won't let it. No. Yeah, no politician wants to let that no. slip because then they're the one that tanked the economy. Not on their watch. Yeah. No, that's right. So they're all <laughs> going to- push it back and that's, back. <laughs> that's right. So they're all going to do something. But, you know, the stabilisation of it helps and, you know, and then it's just a case of, I think there's always events like what we've seen with COVID and- um, Certain events sort the wheat from the chaff, right? And, you know, the um, the developers who were, you know, playing on a rising market, you know, who won't be able to find anything now and don't really have the ability or the skills, or the expertise or the will to do that, just don't do it anymore. So it sorts the wheat from the chaff, I think. And then the people who want to be in business doing something, 
just do it. In a sense, it's kind of like the same concept as like a typical recession, but it's kind of industry focused. You know, it, it after a recession, the recession kind of or any financial crisis kind of cleans out the the weak. Yeah, and what happens is at the end the strong have a lot more of market share because yeah. there's a lot less companies in yeah. it and so they're going to benefit. So it might be a situation with property where a lot of those kind of like, yeah, less interested, well, let's just call them weak for ease of words, mm. a lot of the weaker developers and weaker people that man, didn't really want to be there, they might have been there for whatever reason or they just weren't good operators, mm. they might be removed, gone, move on to something else mm. and uh, it might result in um, the ones who do stay around and survive having a bigger – having more access to sites, mm, exactly. less competition on sites. Exactly. Uh, and therefore more, more more building for themselves. I like the sound of that. Me too. <laughs> Me too. Well, I think it's good. I just, I think, I think we're at a scary place in the country because I, businesses need people. Mm. Like we're constantly trying to hire people and it is hard to hire people. Mm. Cubs are a cool company, mm. right? So for us, I'm sure we find it at least 20 times easier than anyone else to hire because we have people trying to come and it's unique and it's it, it's kind of cool what we do. Yeah. But 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 even we find it hard. Yeah. So if we're finding it hard, if you're like your average IT services business mm. or marketing agency or like you're not finding anyone, yeah. they're not coming. And so businesses need people. They do. And so the government needs to let them in, but but then it's pushing up the property price. Yeah. It's just these weeds and then they're clamping down on the property so they can't build new properties. Mm. And the other issue I feel like we have – sorry, I'm going on a bit of a political no, no, rant. but good. I like it. The other kind of thing I like well, – where me and you kind of merge is that, you know, we don't have enough major cities outside of our major cities. Mm. And so in America, there's major cities everywhere. So if Sydney's too expensive, I can move to X, Mm. you know, I could move to some city down in Nara, you know, down in in the South coast. Mm. Um, whereas we don't have that here. No. It's kind of like it, you, you, you need to live in a major city. It's the only place there's jobs and it's really expensive. Mm. Or, yeah, they're, they're, most of them are really expensive. Yeah. Whereas what needs to happen is they need to let little mini, like Parramatta's kind of thing, be mm. built more all over the place. Mm. Let more businesses start in there. Loosen up the yeah, – let small business mm. SMEs thrive mm. more than they are. Right now they're suppressing them. Let the small businesses thrive. They'll create more jobs in those cities. Those jobs will fill those towers or fill those buildings and attract more people to move to the buildings because they need to live. They don't want to live in the city anymore. It's too expensive. I can go live in Nara or wherever yeah. else. Yeah. And then we've got a real country. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. but now they're just like kind of not letting anything happen. I should be president. I say president. <laughs> I say president because I don't want to be prime minister. I've got too many restrictions. Daniel for president. Yeah. I'm yeah. waiting. I mean, it's a real thing. I'm starting it. I'm okay. waiting for when we become a republic though. Well, I'll be, well, I'm a bit of a monarchist, so I'm not sure I'll be there with Sorry, you. Sorry. Yeah. Well, we'd be breaking out from you guys. <laughs> and so where were you born? England. Yeah, I know I got that far on my own, but Midlands. whereabouts? Midland. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and what made you move? Because you moved with the family? No, 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 no. I was started I was, a family. Here. I was, yeah, yeah. So look, I just had itchy feet. I think when I was younger, um, and I got into tech, and then I worked for a big global consultancy. After I left uni, um, they wanted me to go to Boston. I was in Boston for a bit, and then I was working all over Europe. So I just started travelling with work, and I was kind of like, okay, where's next? A role came up in Australia and I took it and had a two years of common here and then the rest is history really. You um, met your wife here? Yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. That, so, that normally happens to young British guys that come to Australia. Yeah, I've heard, 
Yeah. You know, I've met so many. I reckon so many on the podcast today. Yeah. <laughs> this is literally the story. It's the story. And, and when it comes to property development, I mean, it's a, it's a really hot topic in industry. Mm. Who Who is the person that should be a property developer? Like, who would you recommend that to? What the type of character? Yeah, type of character. What it, What it, What are the What are the good things about being in property development? What are the bad? Mm. Uh, it's not for the faint-hearted, right? So you've got to, um, you know, if you're going to have your own development company, you're running an end-to-end business, right? You've got to, you know, when I when I started Avaline Property, I started it with the aim of it being a a business not just doing one development and then another development and then another development. And if you're going to do multiple developments, then you need to have investment. You need to have a capital stack. The capital stack in property is made up of debt and equity, right? Um, So for me, it's a case of finding profitable projects that work and then bringing in investors who, um, you know, whether it's a family office or what have you or an individual who want to you know, make a decent return on on cash that might be sitting in the bank. The debt part of it is fairly straightforward. Um, but ultimately, you need resilience. You you've, you know, with, without a shadow of a doubt, you need, you need to be very resilient because there's many, many points, and the same would probably apply to many businesses, where there's points at which you're like, why am I doing this? <laughs> this is hard, you know. Uh, there are sleepless nights. Um, there are times when you're kind of like, how am I going to do this? Um, and so you need to be resilient and you need to be able to see a bigger picture. So it's funny going back to the goals that we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, you know, it's important to have your why Simon Sinek talks about it. What's your why? If you don't have a really powerful why, then you can just give up, right? Cause there's nothing motivating you. So for me, I've got a very powerful why and you know, Which is? um, largely freedom, largely just doing things on my own steam and, um, uh, and just, you know, freedom allows you to do other things, right? And, you know, it's 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 not about being super wealthy. It's about being wealthy enough to have freedom and time to be able to give back. And, you know, I'm doing some mentoring with, with three people for nothing, you know, and, and giving my time in that. So, you know, it's... Um, it, it's all about it's all about a combination of things, but it's it's about having that balance and having that freedom. That's my why. I don't want to be locked in. I don't know if this is a, a, a good question or not, but I do know that you discovered you um, had ADHD, or do you say had ADHD or have 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 or you got have. it? Had had it all my yeah. life. Well, but I didn't got know. it. I got it too. Have you? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's mad. Yeah. So many people have. But um, I've actually never formally been diagnosed, but my year, my, my counsellor at high school, I went to an American high school, called my mum in and said, he's dyslexic and he's got ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> I got them all. <laughs> but but, um, but so, sorry, to the question. Yeah. Your, 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 um, your why of freedom, mm. did you find that why out of curiosity after you discovered um, you have ADHD or before? It's a good question. No, before. And it's always been there, to be honest with you. I've always, uh, you know, again, you touched on this a little bit earlier in terms of why, you know, didn't I start a business earlier or whatever. I can't remember where the conversation went with that. But ultimately there was a bit of fear there in terms of, you know, um, being in a stable job, so to speak. The irony is it's the opposite way around. Um, but uh, no, it was. I found out I had an ADHD after but it certainly set off a lot of light bulbs for me in terms of behaviours and what have you that I then reflected on 
um, school reports was one interesting thing that I went through when I found out I had ADHD. Uh, so no, but it but it has um, it has sort of made me think about things in certain ways and how I do things and why I do things. Um, I don't spend a huge amount of time focusing on it. I took meds for a bit, but then I realised I've already learned all these coping mechanisms after all these all this time. I've I've normalised so much of this. I'm organised. I get shit done. I you know don't. Um, how does it impact you? Or how do you fi- how did you fi- how do you find how yeah. how have you found it's impacted you? Yeah, having ADHD has impacted you over your life. Well, the thing that I've realised that I do is you know you'll hear ADHD they talk about procrastination a lot. It's not so much a procrastination. It's that dopamine fix, right? It's that, and everybody has that to a certain extent, but ADHD folks have it more. And so where you don't want to do something and you leave it till the last minute, um, I found, I look back and I've done so much last minute, you know, I've got to do a, a presentation. Have you done it? No. Have you done it? No. Have you done it? Presentations tomorrow. I'll do it today. I'll do it tonight. You know, it's like, you don't want it, you put off doing it, right? So I think for me, I understand that now and I still do it. I still procrastinate, if you want to call it procrastination, where I don't want to do something that doesn't interest me. Um, and do you think it's been a negative impact on your life or a positive? Great question. Um, well, I don't think it's been a whole negative. I don't think it's I don't think it's added up so much that it's like, you know, crushed me or anything like that. Um but I think it's like anything. We've all, you know, we're human beings, right? We have faults. Naturally, we have faults, and we we're not perfect. Um, so we're just different levels of perfect. You know, when when it comes to neurodivergence, um, you know, my my youngest son who's got it, he's quite extreme, and and I see things in him sometimes. I'm like, yeah, that reminds me of me, and then I see things and I go, crikey, that's off the scale. You know, um, is that what made you look into it? Uh, yeah, no, uh, my wife made me look into it. Oh, she was like, okay, you need to get yeah, checked. Yeah, she, 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 she spent a long time getting our youngest son kind of to the point where she was like, okay, I think I've got a diagnosis that makes sense now because it was years of knowing that there's something going on but not knowing why. But what, what are the type of actions that um, a young person with ADHD, <sighs> like what are some of the things that you notice? Yeah, so, so I, I think the main ones are... Um, there could be an interest in something of really deep interest for a while, but then it'll stop and it'll be something else. Yeah, right? see, that's me. Yeah, right. So unless and and so you know, it's a sh- let's call it a short attention span, right? In short but intense. Short but intense. Yeah, you can do a lot in the short period, but then yeah. you'll find something new, and it's like, yep, oh, see you. Exactly. And they call it hyperfocus, right? So, um, so there's that, and then and you notice your son had that. He has that. And also he has anxiety. So that was something I recognized as well. And through some therapy got, yeah, that's right. It's amazing how many people. When I was young. Successful people as well have anxiety. Uh, It sort of goes hand in hand, right? Now, people without ADD, people who are not neurodivergent may not, may be able to handle it in different ways. Whereas he, as a young boy, he um, gets scared by things um, and you know, he, he, like for example, in school, um, if he couldn't keep up, then he'd start to feel embarrassed and his embarrassment would turn into, I just don't want to be here. So we homeschooled him for a year. He's just gone back this year. Um, and we're trying to get him to stay in, but you know, those are just a couple of things really, but it's, there's a lot, 
there's a lot to it, a lot more than people realise. Yeah. yeah, I read this thing once that um, AD, ADHD is actually like a, a human evolution where a certain number of people in society should have it because when you're sitting around the campfire back in the caveman days and if everyone's at peace and feeling comfortable and focused on the fire or focused on the story, big fucking lion's going to come eat someone. But if you have a couple of people, they're like, oh, fire, hmm, what's that tree? Oh, lion, shit, guys, lion. Like it, the tribe survives much better. Mm. So, it, 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 you know, they say it's that- interesting. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading that yeah, too. And great. I was like, that's me because at nighttime I'm always scared. So I'm always like, what? Like, you know, Funny, yeah. I'm always, always fully switched on. Yeah. Like when I was young, I couldn't sleep ever. Like now I've obviously learned Ditto. how to sleep. But, but, have you? But, you know, I was sleeping pills and Maybe you can, things. But, oh, you'll have to but, give me some tips after if that's one. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, the biggest thing that I've done is I wear an eye mask now. Yeah. It's really changed my life. You know, I've only just started wearing earplugs. Okay. Well, no, I, I don't do that. No, I don't want to look like an idiot while I sleep. <laughs> <laughs> But, but <laughs> I must have been a big one for me. Um, yeah. Um, but anyway, I thought that was quite inter- an interesting way to look very, at it. Very, yeah. very. Yeah. And, and it's quite interesting to think like, you know, I believe everything happens for a reason. Mm. So, um, and, and certainly what, and so when it comes to the human brain, mm. there are definitely things I believe uh, like ADHD. I really believe that that is an evolution that, mm. that humans needed to to survive best as a community. Mm. Few people needed to be looking at a lot of stuff. Yeah, I definitely think there are some things happening in humans' brains right now that are caused by external things mm. like um, medical things and whatnot. But yeah, but in the whole, I think everything has a reason. And mm. when you can actually find that reason, it's kind of like empowering. It's not like yeah, I was the guy that saved everyone. <laughs> well, I, li- I like that, so I'm going to take that one away it. because I think that's kind of like you know a bit superheroish. It is. Right? But it not, genuinely is. Yeah. And not all superheroes wear capes. No, it just means you don't sleep very well at night, no, but it's okay. you make sure everyone else is safe. You do. And so there we are. Um, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Though, it is it? interesting. It is. It's, 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 it's an interesting – neurodivergence is really interesting to navigate, um, but it opens your eyes to so many things. So I'm glad that, you know, I've – glad that I've got it, but glad that I know about it mm. and understand it more. Yeah. yeah. Um, one thing that um, I read or that you, you you had in your prep sheet was one of the most important things to do as a person is to do what you say you're going to do. Mm, mm, that's right. You know, and I read that and I was like, that is so true. Like me and Laura screwed that up this week. I told actually a Boer investor that I was going to email him mm. later that day and yet we still have not emailed him. So we should do that right <laughs> after this. But like that's Just the type it, of yeah. thing. It's when it you say something and, and people see it happened. Yeah. They're like, okay, yeah, good person, yeah. And I think there's a tendency with that as well. And and I've I've done this myself many many times over the years, which is to um, overpromise and underdeliver, which is what it comes down to, right? So I think um, I've I try now to give myself more of a buffer. If I say instead of saying I'll call you tomorrow uh, and it's Monday, I'll say I'll call you by Friday, right? And then if I call them on Thursday to win, I've overdelivered. And I look better, right? And that builds trust because at the end of the day, I don't think there's anything else that builds trust faster than you doing what you say you're going to do. Completely agree. Right? And it that's pretty simple sort of thing to do. Completely right? agree. Yeah. Well, Nolan, thank you so much for coming on today. Actually, you've mentioned a lot of books. Is there a book or favorite 
thing that you'd like to share? Mm. Well, I mean, there you've was mentioned one. a lot. You've done three. I think you've mentioned three books. You've got Simon Sinek's book, yeah. Think and Grow Rich, and you said one more. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. Uh, I've look. I've I've done a lot of like I've read a lot of self help motivation. You know. Um, psych- psychology stuff over the years. I think, that, you know, there's so many books out there that are so great. I take a little bit from everyone, um, more some than others. The latest, the most recent book I read was The 5am Club, actually, um, Robin Sharma. And um, it's an interesting read, right? I mean, I'm not a 5am guy, right? But some of the things in there that, you know, he sort of talks about that you should, that you can do as a kind of a, um, I don't know, um, systemization, right? It comes back to that systemization, having a process, having a system, having something that you do every day, you know. Um, and uh, and and so that's that's a good that's a good book. But there's so many, so yeah. many. I'm going to read that one. I'm yeah. a current six a.m. club person. Are you? I get to the office at seven a.m. That's good every day, but I wake up at six. That's very good. Um, yeah. But but I have been thinking like maybe I should do five. Get there at six. I have a whole shower. Yeah. Try it. I will. Maybe well, use this as the line in the sand. I don't know about that, but I'm going to buy the book. And I'll read it. <laughs> I'll read it. Anyway, to our listeners, if you want to get in touch with Nolan, you can go to cub.club forward slash podcast uh, and find his details there along with other tips, tricks, favorite books and other links. Uh, you'll also find the information from all of our other incredible guests that we've had on the show. Um, if you want to catch up with Cub on social media, it's at Club United Business on Instagram. It's also awesome. Nolan, thank you so much for coming on, and it was fantastic to meet you today. Daniel Ditto, thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed the show.